Today is April 9th, 2020, in the year of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Tawahado Bible Study is back, and we are connected once again with the Ephesus School Network. Glory be to God. We will be looking at and examining the readings of the Associate Deacon. We did this last time from 2016 to 2017. But those episodes are lost to the sands of time. Perhaps by the grace of God, they will make a reappearance. Right now, I'm not so hopeful. But if they do, we can see how the same texts are examined by the same person over a set of years. And hopefully that invites all of my hearers and listeners to have ears that hear as they go through the biblical text. So I will be reading James chapter 1 in its entirety. First and foremost... James is a mistranslation that came to the English language. This should be Jacob, who is also Israel. The Greek is Iakobos. The Giz, which is a transliteration of the Greek, is Yaakob. Jacob is the heel grabber, the ankle locker. The heel in wrestling, at least in its professional variety in the 21st century, is that villainous Person. And indeed, all but Jesus are villains in the Holy Scriptures or in the Sacred Scriptures. And here in his story, we have to go back to the Older Testament to understand what villainy, what supplanting, what heel grabbing, what ankle locking he's up to with his brother Esau. And you could even see him with an angel that represents God, which is how he got the name Israel which is later also attributed to the community of the Israelites and their brothers, the Judahites or the Jews, who together make up the main random group that God selected to show his story of love in, in the Older Testament so that he could later share that love in a newer Testament with all of humanity, all the children of Adam and of Eve, of the mother of the living and of the groundling. So Israel is the one who does jujitsu with God, the one who wrestles with God, the one who grapples with God, the one who contends with God. So here we go. Verse 1. Jacob, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Reading. Here we see the Apostle James, or the Apostle Yaakobos, the Apostle Yaakob, the Apostle Jacob, the Apostle Israel, writing to the diasporic Jews or Judahites or Israelites. He's writing to those people who contend with God, who grapple with God, who wrestle with God, who do jujitsu and engage with God, not physically, but spiritually, through the reading of the text that were assigned to their tradition and held as holy and esteemed to see and learn the commandments that are many of the living God, but that are always summed in the love of God and in the love of neighbor. Verses 2 to 8 will come to, but first I want you to reflect on the thought 
of the diaspora, the diasporic Jews listening to this message or this word of life, especially if you find yourself to be in a diasporic community. If you're an immigrant or a children of immigrants from another country, think about what your community is like, how it is dispersed, and how it could be called together or regathered by the life-giving word of God. Verses 2 to 8, count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all men generously and without reproaching, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, will receive anything from the Lord. Here we learn that our Lord and his word, which he communicates to us through, is an anchor amidst chaos, amidst disorder, uh, amidst a hubbub or a brouhaha. The path of the apostles of our Lord Jesus and of the prophets was not for the soft. It was a rough road filled with ups and downs, filled with trials. And yet the apostles, our Lord Jesus and the prophets kept their eyes on the prize. They were looking for that crown of righteousness for which God would reveal his pleasure to them upon the day of judgment that is always in the future, but could be very close, closer than we imagine to our Lord, who is closer to us than our own breath. We have to realize that we're being asked to sow the seed, the same seed that was sowed in Genesis, and to keep sowing it, whether or not we see the fruits of our labor. We need to genuinely and eagerly and fervently ask the Lord for wisdom to obey him. And we need to ask with faith, which is the superlative trust, the utmost trust, trust to the upteenth degree. And we need to be unfazed by the winds and the spirits that will toss us to and fro, the false teachers that will try to get us to stray from wisdom. Let us attend wisdom. Verses 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Here we see language that is common in the prayer called the Magnificant of Our Lady, the Holy Virgin Mary, in the Gospel according to Luke. We also see language that reminds us of the Psalms and of Isaiah. We see that those who try to make themselves on high, those who are insolent, those who are arrogant, will be humiliated. They will be brought down. And those who are humble shall be exalted. They shall be lifted up. Material wealth has no meaning to the Lord. The accumulation of it has no value. That is the entire book of Ecclesiastes, all 12 chapters, which I invite you to read and reread. And now I have another reason to reread and rehear as well. This material wealth can be gone whenever. Imagine the pandemic that we're in. How sad is it? How sorrowful should we be? 
that we see these banksters with their banks despairing and asking to be bailed out in 2020 in the year of our Lord, as if they weren't already bailed out in 2008. They boast of their riches and their wealth at other times, but where are they now? Think about boasting in the stability that is given to you by the grace of God through sowing his seed in season and out of season, during the plague and when there is no plague, when there's not even a thought of a plague. Verses 12 to 18. Blessed is the man who endures trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good endowment and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I love the phrase, do not be deceived. I work in a school environment where the children are told, don't get tricked. And that means in our context, uh, as a part of our behavioral system, that they should know what is right from what is wrong and be able to delineate it and not be tricked into doing that which is wrong, but stay on the path of doing that which is right. Here, the Apostle Paul says, do not be deceived to his beloved brethren and sistren in Christ. And we are given again, uh, excuse me, I said the Apostle Paul, this is the Apostle Jacob. And here we are given the incredible language of Genesis one more time, which reminds us that the Older Testament is greater than or equal to the Newer Testament, if I'm allowed a math equation. And by that, I mean, people try to toss the Older Testament and keep the Newer Testament. If anything, the Older Testament is more important because it is the Older Testament, which was considered divine scripture by the writers of the Newer Testament. It is the Older Testament, which was universally accepted first. It was the Older Testament, which Jesus used to preach to the Sadducees. And even for them, he only used the Pentateuch or the first five books because they didn't even believe in the, the law, uh, excuse me, in the prophets or in the other writings. They didn't believe in the Nephavim or the Ketuvim, only the Torah or those first five books. So we should keep in most importance, those first five books of the Bible, but then later as well, the section known as the prophets and the section known as the Ketuvim or the other writings. And then also we value the Newer Testament because we are Christians and through our bishops, we have received all of these texts as a part of our tradition. And in the beginning, in Genesis, we hear about the creation of the lights, of the greater light and the lesser light or the greater luminaries and the lesser luminaries, as we see in some translations. So here we see the father of lights and the calling of the first fruits. All of this language harkens back. It invites us to go reread in the beginning or to go reread Genesis. And here we are told that for the sake of the father of lights, for the sake of becoming one of his first fruits, we need to watch out for our desire, which can lead to sin and eventually death. 
if we think about it in terms that Adam and Eve would be familiar with, their desire to know good and evil led to them eating the forbidden fruit, which led to their disobedience. Their disobedience was their death. Their eating of the forbidden fruit was their sin, and their want to know good from evil was their desire. So we have to be careful of that and realize that obedience to God is life. As the Navy SEAL Jocko Willink often says in his podcast, discipline equals freedom. It's counterintuitive, but when we are able to discipline ourselves with the life-giving word of God, we are free from the life of sin and from death and able to walk according to life and enter a new slavery or bond servitude to our God. Verses 19 to the end. Know this, my beloved brethren, let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rank growth of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls or breaths of life. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who observes his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But he who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer that forgets but a doer that acts, he shall be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this man's religion is vain. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstayed from the world. So we are called as individuals and as communities to chastity, to keeping ourselves pure, to keeping ourselves innocent. In addition, we are told to be quick or swift listen to our brothers and sisters, slow to let words out of our mouths, and even when we do that, to let those words be aligned with the words of God, and slow to anger so that we could catch ourselves before we hate our brothers and sisters and are considered murderers, as we'll see later when we examine the Johnine literature. And finally, religion is not mocked, as a lot of American Christians are saying, by the textual tradition of Christianity. Religion is put forward as beautiful. The issue is what type of religion. There is non-functional religion and there is functional religion. Here, the apostle Jacob paints for us the picture of the unfunctional or non-functional religion as the religion of unbridled tongues, of deceived hearts, of vanity. But he has the right religion the orthodoxy as the same line that the prophets would always say, which is to look after the orphan and the widow. Where are the orphans and the widows in our local areas? Remember, we have to take care of our local Christian fellowships. And once we are able, just like a person in an airplane who has given themselves the breathing mechanism so that they could take care of the person next to them, we have to look out, and the closer they are, the better they are. Who are the orphans and the widows or the functionally most in need in our neighborhoods, in our localities? And through localism, how can we attend to them?
is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Oh. Uh-huh.